As we consider this evening the topic of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience, our scripture reading will be from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. We'll also be reading in just a moment from page 931 in the back of the songbook, chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the word of God. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's listen also to this 20th chapter of the Confession of Faith, which we'll find to be a helpful guide in our quest for better understanding the subject of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law, But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged and their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness to access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, 
which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, that is, conduct, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either, either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ hath established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. It is a sad fact that liberated Christians are not always good at practicing Christian liberty. Liberated Christians are not always so good at practicing Christian liberty. We struggle to break free from the hold of besetting sins, those which Christ has died to free us from. Sometimes we even make allowances for sin on the grounds of our freedom in Christ. Christ has freed me from penalty of sin so I can live how I please. It's terribly ungodly, unbiblical reasoning, but we do it. Not always consciously, but we do it. And we are tempted to hold others to the same standard as ourselves, even on matters in which they are not bound by Scripture. Now, this has always been so, but the last three years have made this failure powerfully obvious. The church has not, in all quarters, done well at practicing Christian liberty, particularly in the last several years. It's one of the things I love about this congregation. This is a congregation that loves true Christian liberty. And so I see as one of the wonderful blessings of this congregation a willingness to not be on the same page on matters in which we are not bound by Scripture to be on the same page. But we do struggle, don't we? We, we find it tidier and more affirming when we have all like practices, even on those which Scripture doesn't require. Perhaps we don't even consider Christian liberty to be very important. 
If you were writing a 33-point summary of the faith, would you even think to include the subject of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience as the Westminster Confession of Faith has? It's an important subject and one that we do struggle with. In fact, our, our failure to practice Christian liberty is a tragic irony since in Scripture, liberty is nearly synonymous with salvation. We could replace in many instances in, in uh, our Christian communication the word liberty for the word salvation. Listen again to Paul, just summarizing the ministry of Christ, saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Believers have been delivered from sin in order to freely obey God according to his word, which alone ought to dictate our consciences. And so we may not become enslaved again to sin or to the opinions of people or to the commandments of men. We may not do it because for freedom, Christ has set us free. We may not, as Paul says at the, uh, in the 15th verse of Galatians 5, we may not bite and devour one another way of, the way that Paul describes what it would look like for us to be constantly imposing our own rules on other people instead of respecting the conscience of the believer. We may not bite and devour one another. We need instead to treasure our freedom in Christ and respect his sovereignty over the conscience. And so I want to look at those two parts of this subject this evening. In turn, first of all, we must learn from Scripture to treasure our freedom in Christ. Not just know about it or acknowledge it, admit it, but in fact, treasure it. And Christian freedom means a lot of things, but I want to focus on three things that, that Christian freedom ought to mean to us and why we ought to treasure it. First of all, this, Christ has purchased for believers freedom from sin and condemnation. That's so important, isn't it? Because sin enslaves. Sin advertises freedom, but always enslaves. Like human traffickers against whom we prayed this evening in light of Psalm chapter 10, human traffickers often entice their victims with promises of greater freedom, a, a new job in another country or whatever it might be, but always enslaves. Sin likewise promises life but always leads to death. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans 6, 23. And apart from God's grace, that's where we are, enslaved to sin, bearing the, the, the deadly fruit of sin. Apart from God's grace, sin reigns in our bodies, Paul says in Ephesians 6, making us obey its passions. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin, for whom sin is a practice, is actually a slave to sin. They're no longer even practicing sin freely. They've even become enslaved to it. 
That's the nature of sin. And so, praise the Lord, Christ sets believers free from sin's guilt, from God's wrath, from the law's curse. And and the confession catalogs, just by way of a sample, many more blessings of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Yes, we live in this present evil world, but it no longer defines us. Satan can trouble us, but he no longer owns us. Sin tempts us, but no longer dominates us. Afflictions plague us, but only for a little longer. Death and the grave grieve us, but Jesus has removed their sting and canceled their victory. No longer condemned by sin, no longer barred from God's presence, believers are accepted in Christ and have free access to God. This is the heart of the gospel. We've been freed from sin's stranglehold on us, the way that it is, has enslaved us to sin and, and caused to bear in us all the worst fruit that this life has to offer. Believers have been set free from the tyranny of sin, from the tyranny of the devil. Praise the Lord. Treasure that aspect of the freedom that Christ has given to you. Remember that when, when Paul says to us, for freedom Christ has set us free. I'm no longer bound by sin, no longer in the clutches of the evil one, no longer under the tyranny of death and hell. There's a second aspect that we must treasure about our freedom in Christ, and that is that Christ has enabled believers to obey God freely. From the beginning, we read in Luke chapter 1, the prophet here reciting God's ancient promise that he would deliver us from our enemies that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The prophet says that's always been the promise, that we would not only be set free from Satan and his trickery, but that we would be free to obey God, to honor him in all that we do. Now, apart from Christ, you can't do that. We've, we've talked before in, in our studies in the confession how there is a sense in which a person has a free will. Even when we sin, we're doing that which accords with our poisoned will. We, we don't sin um, under some external constraint. We sin because that's how we, what we have chosen, what we want to do. And, and yet, though we have a, a sense of freedom and free will, we cannot... Because our wills have been poisoned, we can't obey God freely apart from Jesus. The best one might do while under the constraints of the old man. The best one might do, even in a congregation, is to obey under compulsion, to obey out of fear of punishment, to obey out of concern for how one looks in the community or in the congregation. But of course, God doesn't want us to serve him like that. The gospel of free grace in Christ 
says to every believer, you are no longer a slave, but a son. You should no longer be serving like a slave. Should you serve? Must you serve? Yes, but not like a slave. Grace brings into us a a whole new mentality of how we serve the Lord. God doesn't want us to serve him like that. God's love for us and our love for him and only these can make our service for him a delight. We, we serve him out of a, a recognition that, he, that God is our father, that Christ is our brother, that the spirit is within us, that he's brought us into his family and given us that freedom And so we should never talk about, in in a certain sense, having to do what God requires. Yes, we have to do what God requires. But the way the Bible wants us to think about this as, as children of God is that we're now freed to be able to do what God requires of us, something that we did not have the freedom to do outside of Christ. And then third, we ought to treasure... that Christ has freed believers from the yoke of the ceremonial law. It's interesting that the New Testament in interpreting the ceremonial law says, as Paul does, the law is good, and yet it's a yoke. It's burdensome, the, the ceremonial aspect of the law. Remember, as we studied last time, that the ceremonial laws were given to a church under age. And so there was, as one writer put it, a childish and slavish aspect to the tutelage of the law. He's drawing from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, where Paul says, "Um, I, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, uh, though he is the owner of everything. He's no different from a slave in the sense that he's under guardians and managers. He has minute rules that he must observe, and those minute rules are burdensome as one grows up and ages. And so in the, in the Old Testament ceremonial laws, there was a, a sense of, 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 of burdensomeness. But believers today have a new freedom. Here was Paul's plea to the men of Israel in a sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 13. He says this, Men of Israel, in Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everything. Now, remember in Paul's day, some believers continued to burden the church with an unbearable yoke. Peter Uh, in the Jerusalem Council, calls it an unbearable yoke. Why do you um, troublers continue to uh, confront the Gentile believers with a yoke that even we and our fathers couldn't bear up under? We We didn't love the ceremonial law. We found it troublesome. And so the, the, these, um, troublers in the church insisted that even believers must still practice circumcision and keep the other ceremonial laws in order to be saved. But the Spirit taught the early church that grace frees us from burdensome laws that have already served God's purpose in pointing the church to the Savior, Jesus. And so in that aspect also, we ought to treasure the freedom that Christ has given to us, that we, that we uh, need not be bothered by these 
slavish and childish, uh, the, the childish and slavish aspects of the Old Testament law. Now, we're, we're never uh, free to set aside the moral law. We made that distinction, didn't we, last time? But thank God we're freed from the ceremonial law. And so the gospel of Christ might be summarized like this, as one of our forms puts it, speaking of Jesus. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins. And this salvation, this freeing that Christ has achieved for us profoundly affects our calling, how we live in this world. We are to live in this world as truly free people. Paul says it this way, doesn't he, in verse 13 of Galatians 5, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul uh, is sure to insert that that caution, that caveat, don't, don't take your freedom in the wrong direction. You may not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but you've been called to freedom. So, so through love, serve one another. Do it joyfully. Do it gladly. Disagree with each other on non-essential matters. Respect each other's consciences. Serve people that you disagree with in the church of Jesus Christ. And do it gladly because you've been together freed from all that the Mosaic law could not free us from. Now, the doctrine of Christian liberty, as we've considered it so far, has implications, as you might guess, for life in the church. Specifically, each of us, having been rescued by Jesus, must recognize God alone as the Lord of our consciences. Now, so I want to consider second now, this calling of every free Christian to respect God's sovereignty over the conscience. And this is um, one of the most helpful things that we find in the Westminster Confession that isn't found in the same way in the three forms of unity, a, a, a particular application to what does it look like to live in the church of Jesus Christ as free people, respecting God's sovereignty over the conscience. And what that phrase means Uh, when the confession says that God alone is Lord of the conscience, is that only God may determine right and wrong. Only God can tell us how to think and what to do. And so we must only submit out of conscience to God's word. We may... not allow ourselves to be bound by the will of anyone but God. That would be offensive to the God who has saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ and has freed us to to respond exclusively to his will. Now, at the same time, of course, we recognize that God mediates his sovereign will to our consciences through means, such as external authorities. And so, of course, this, this, um, r- this truth that God alone is Lord of the conscience doesn't allow us to declare ourselves to be anarchist and say, well, then I don't have to respect anybody. Uh, I'll only answer to God alone. No, God mediates 
his sovereign will through means. Children then honor their parents because God says so. That is not, uh, that, that calling children to honor your father and your mother isn't in place because of the sovereignty of your parents. That command is given to you because of the sovereignty of God. God, who alone can control, uh, command your conscience, says to you, honor your father and your mother. The church, likewise, calls members to worship according to God's law. Right? The church has that authority to call believers to worship because God grants to the church that authority. It's truly God who's calling believers to come and, and fall down before him and magnify him in the presence of, uh, of all the saints who have gone before us and the holy angels. God calls us, but he does so through the means of the organized church. In a similar way then, a citizen who rejects civil authority, as Paul says in Romans 13:2, resists what God has appointed. And so God alone rules the conscience. But he does so um, through means. We're going to try to parse that out a little bit more, but it's, it's helpful what the confession says here, that the powers which God hath ordained, parents, um, church leadership, civil government, the powers which God hath ordained, and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are meant to work in harmony. The design here is not that the external authorities are working against God's sovereignty over the consciences, but in partnership with that sovereignty, out of respect for that sovereignty. And so we may disobey proper authorities only if they command us to sin. But we do so not for our sakes, not to stick it to the man, whoever that man might be. We do that for God's sake because God has said to us, I command your conscience. And so if an authority of whatever uh, title tells us to sin, we must for God's sake say no. I, 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 I can only answer to God's will not to the will of someone who tells me to disobey it. We may not obey, uh, we may not uh, disobey authorities um, for any other reason, but that God owns us. God's sovereignty of conscience also means that no one may require or forbid anything contrary to God's word. So, so, First of all, we need to be careful how we steward our own conscience, right? We must be sure that we are not subjecting ourselves to the the dictates of someone else outside of God's revealed will, right? So we have to curate our own consciences. But this reality of the liberty of conscience under God also applies to authorities, No one may require or forbid anything contrary to God's word. Human authorities can only command consciences by truly imposing God's will. So yes, for conscience sake, you must uh, reverence uh, authorities of any kind that govern properly and well. That means 
For example, thinking now about life in the church, uh, what it looks like to live out of a respect for God's sovereignty over conscience, it means that no church has the power to make rules that contradict the rules of God or that violate the freedom of the Christian. No church may say you must homeschool or you may not homeschool. I just take that as an example, right? The church doesn't have the right to say that. God hasn't given the church the right to speak authoritatively on that. No church may impose, even in an unwritten way, a dress code for worship, besides demanding, of course, the modesty that God requires, 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Outside of that, the church doesn't have the right to say, you know, uh, according to conscience, you must wear such and such. The church may not declare it a sin to drink alcohol. The church should not speak with authority on the necessity or evils of vaccinations. The church should teach believers the principles of voting, but may not endorse a candidate, and so on and so on. There's so many ways that we as, uh, as God's people might violate this principle that God alone is sovereign over the conscience, but we must not. We may and must educate and flesh out the word of God and apply it in hard and tricky situations. But we respect the consciences of believers as we do that. You have the liberty of conscience and the responsibility to employ reason on these matters. God has given you that freedom and he has given you his word and he has given you reason and you must work out those matters. You and I should also consider honoring human customs out of love, out of respect, perhaps out of prudence, perhaps out of a desire to keep the peace, but not as if humans control your conscience. So again, this isn't an argument that we can um, carelessly run roughshod over the, the customs of of a church or a family or a community. No, we, we have an obligation to consider what it would look like to love that church or that family or that community in their traditions, but not out of conscience. Not because that community, whatever it is, owns our conscience. Church leaders, indeed all believers, should do uh, a... a, a I guess I could say a better job. We could always be doing a better job, certainly more broadly conceived, but should do a better job of clearly distinguishing between advice and biblical admonitions, right? Biblical admonitions are such that a, not only a right authority, but any believer of God can say, in the name of God, you must do this, right? We, we can work through the moral law and we can say, uh, you, you you must not practice sexual sin. You must not marry anyone outside of the Lord. You must not. We could go on and on. You mu- you can speak with that authority when you're speaking um, in, in the name of God according to His Word. But but we must distinguish then between when we're just simply giving advice. You know, and we ought to say, brother, this is not this is not. Uh, I, I can't tell you that this is the will of God for you. But I can tell you that in my experience, or, 
what I've been reading or, or uh, you know, whatever, that here's something for you to consider. We need to, con- we need to clearly distinguish between advice and biblical admonitions, and we should be gracious when our advice is declined. Believers have that freedom to decline advice, even in the church. When it comes to the worship of God, we must be even more careful. The history of religion is a sad story of setting aside God's word in favor of human ingenuity. How can I improve the worship of God? That's one of the questions that uh, can tempt us. We see sad examples of priests in the Old Testament and heretics along the way right up to our day who've said, how can I improve on the worship of God? How can I employ human ingenuity and sidestep God's word? But how can we hope to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 5, if we ignore how God tells us to worship him? And so if, if in, in ordinary life, we have to be careful to be subject by way of conscience to the authority of God. When it comes to worship, we need to be even more careful, even more careful. In our day, when worship becomes choreographed, when its impact relies on charismatic personalities, you can be sure that it's no longer bound by God's word. It's bound by the creativity and the ingenuity and authority of somebody. Man-centered worship, then, is a subtle but deadly violation of Christian liberty. Only the Lord Jesus Christ may command our consciences, especially in matters of worship. In fact, so important is Christian liberty that violators, as we're reminded of in the end of this study in the confession, are subject to church censures. Church discipline won't speak at length on this. That's a separate chapter that we hope to consider later. But the point here is that no one has the freedom to sin. No one has the freedom to sinfully threaten peace and order in the church. No one has the freedom to imagine that they command the consciences of fellow church members. And to to attempt to do so puts one under church censures. Of course, this is why churches should have real membership and why members should pledge to submit themselves to the church's government and if necessary to also its admonitions and discipline. Why? Why is that so important? Um, Well, the answer to that question traces back to the foundation of Christian liberty because we're talking here about the precious blood of Jesus Christ by which God has bought the church for himself, not for the tyranny of anyone else, whether in official leadership or just exerting their strong opinions. God owns the church. He's purchased the church through the blood of his son, and we may not give one inch to the tyranny of another person or group of people. 
Christ has shed his blood for the freedom of God's beloved children. He has bought us all of the benefits of salvation as we've sung. How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. We're redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness. That's our calling. It's all about freedom. Properly conceived. The Old Testament year of Jubilee, about which you can read, but which sadly was seldom, if ever, actually practiced in the history of the Old Testament church. But that year of Jubilee has come, and it's come in Jesus Christ. What that was pointing to, the release of indentured servants and the release of properties back to their family ownership, all of that was pointing to the ministry of Jesus Christ who's going to come and set the captive free and bring us into a free land where the tyranny of sin will have no place, no opportunity to rise up. The gospel tells us that slaves of sin and hell have received full freedom and the great privilege of honoring the one who has purchased our liberty by his own blood. And so, if you have been freed by Christ, for God's sake, live as a free person and encourage and pray for and facilitate the practice of truly free Christianity in the church of Jesus Christ and in this local congregation. Thank God for the freedom that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this salvation that you have granted to us. We are not any longer slaves or immature, underage children. You have granted to your people freedom in Christ. And we pray that we would live this way, not so that we could satisfy ourselves, but that we would love our brother and our sister, honoring their freedom and respect also the institutions that you have placed under your charge to lead us in ways of godliness. Please help us and the leaders of all of the institutions under your care and hasten the day in which our freedom will be fully realized. In Jesus' name we pray.